Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be back in the Sermon on the Mount again this morning. Covering Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. Friedrich Nietzsche was a very famous atheist. He was also the son and grandson of Lutheran pastors, but he despised Christianity. In particular, he hated the apparent weakness of Christianity. In 1888, he wrote a book entitled The Antichrist, which was a title that he actually applied to himself. Uh, In it, he defined good as all that heightens the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself in man. Bad, he defined as all that proceeds from weakness. He went on to write, what is more harmful than any vice? Active sympathy for the ill-constituted and weak namely Christianity. He also wrote, nothing in our unhealthy modernity is more unhealthy than Christian pity. Uh, he, he wasn't a big fan of the Sermon on the Mount. You know? <laughs> blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. No. He rejected all of that. And the more that you and I decide that we are going to identify with Jesus Christ and identify with kingdom values, with what Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the more fully we identify with these, that we believe what Jesus is teaching, that those who actually are, who are meek are blessed, that those who give away are actually filled, the more that we do that, the more that we can expect to experience persecution in our lives. That's what it means to, to identify with Jesus Christ question for us this morning is how do we suffer well? How do we reflect and radiate the very character and values and personality of Jesus Christ in any and every circumstance? I want you to read with me in chapter 5, beginning in verse 10 of Matthew. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How do we suffer well? The first thing is we should not be surprised. If they persecuted Jesus Christ, they'll persecute us. If they rejected Christ, they will reject us. The more fully we identify with Jesus Christ, we'll experience all that Jesus Christ experienced. I want to read to you from John's Gospel, chapter 15. Jesus is giving some final instructions to his disciples before he leaves them. And he says in chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. If you live a value system that is contrary to the world's value system, at some point in time, you will experience rejection. I remember when I was a student, I had a friend who was not a believer in Jesus Christ. And one day he told me, he said, you know, I feel like you're always judging me. And I I couldn't understand why he felt that way because I never ever said anything to him about his lifestyle or the choices that he was making. I just chose to live a different way. And we were still friends. 
And we still spent time together, but he was making different lifestyle choices and suffering the consequences of those poor choices. I was making different choices and reaping the benefit of those choices. I was living according to a completely different value system. And so he told me, I feel like you're judging me, but you know, I really wasn't. I didn't feel any need to judge him. The results of his own conduct were his own judgment. But he felt very uncomfortable around me just because I was living a really different life. I don't know, any of you students ever had a friend, close friend who got engaged and you're not engaged? You ever had that experience? You know, they get engaged and, you know, they're just happy all the time. You know, they're just always walking around smiling, you know, man, I I flunked that test, but I don't care. She loves me. You know, I wrecked my car. It's okay because we're getting married. It's awesome. Are you, are you dating anyone? No. I'm engaged, you know, oh, it's just gross, isn't it? It's horrible. You don't even want to be around them, right? Because they're so happy all the time. They're filled with joy. Well, you know, sometimes that happens to us as Christians, not because we're judging anyone else, but because we have something that deep down inside they know they really need. If you identify with Jesus Christ, At some point, you will suffer persecution. Paul wrote, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And he's not talking about suffering because we're obnoxious about our faith or because we're self-righteous or because we're condescending, but because we're living according to a different value system and our lives are changed because of it. That is contrary to the world's value system and we will suffer persecution. So Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, Peter tells us, as Lance just read, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is what happens to people who identify with Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised. Second, don't retaliate, but love. Turn just one page back in Jesus' sermon, chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. To be a son of your father who is in heaven means that you're like him. You're like your father. Your father's DNA is in you. You're a son, you're a daughter because you're like him. And what is he like? Well, he causes, he causes the, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He is kind and generous to ungrateful people. Don't retaliate, but love, forgive. And he's not, he's not talking about when, obviously, when a crime is committed against you, somebody steals your car, call the cops, right? That's not what he's saying. Talking about forgiveness. We'll talk a lot more about that next week because it's a huge topic for us as Christians, to display the forgiveness and the love of Jesus Christ. Third thing, though, that Jesus says here is, don't become depressed, but rejoice. Look back in chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice. Be glad. Keep your place here in Matthew and turn to Luke chapter 6. In Luke 6, Luke records a very similar sermon that Jesus preached. It's called the Sermon on the Plain, not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Plain. Okay, very similar sermon. Jesus preached for three years and similar themes came up. 
He hit on these same ideas in chapter 6 of Luke, verse 22. He says, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Rejoice. And don't just rejoice, leap, jump. Can you imagine if Christians, we took this literally? And Christians, they're jumping all around town. What's the deal? They're so happy, they're jumping. Even when we persecute them. It's amazing. You know, apparently the disciples took Jesus very seriously. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Chapter 5. In Acts 5, the disciples are now apostles. They're being sent out and they begin to preach. And as they preach, they begin to experience persecution. The religious establishment doesn't like what they're saying. And they're jealous of their popularity. And so they haul them in and put them in prison so that they can stop them from preaching. They are considering putting them to death. They put them in prison and that night, angel comes, prison opens up, and they all go out and the the Spirit of the Lord says, keep preaching, go back into the temple and start over, preach again. So, The religious establishment sends to the prison to get them out so that they can persecute them, and they're not there. Where are they? Well, they're back in the temple. They're preaching it. Well, go get them again, you know, and bring them back in. And they they bring them back in, and they're, they're, they're rebuking them, telling them, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And they're threatening them. Their lives are at stake. And Gamaliel, who's one of their numbers, says, well, put them out for a second. Let's talk. Let's chat about this. And he says, let me offer you some wisdom. If this thing is not of God, it'll just go away. It's happened before. We've had other, you know, movements strike up and other Messiah types and people just, you know, it it just goes away. But if it is of God, we don't want to stand in God's way. So I recommend that you just leave them alone. Okay. Chapter 5, verse 40. says, they took Gamaliel's advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. Well, they sort of took his advice, right? <laughs> but not completely. Flogging was, was 39 lashes with a whip. Not 40 because 40 is what the law allowed and they didn't want to break the law. It's really thoughtful, right? <laughs> Let's just make it 39. 39 lashes across the back. Maybe in the same kind of whip used against Jesus that might have had a piece of bone in it or stone. Wow, oh man, 39 across the bare back. They flogged them. It says, and then they ordered them, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus or else. Then they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing, probably not leaping because they couldn't leap. But as best that they could, in the midst of that pain, having 40, 39 lashes across their back, they're rejoicing Because they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. And every day and in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Knowing they might get more beatings, knowing that they might be imprisoned again, knowing that they might lose their lives. They were rejoicing. Because they believed so fully that Jesus was the solution For the world's problems. He was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. They wanted to fully identify with Him, not just in future glory, but right now, even in His present sufferings. How do you do that? 
How do you do that? Well, I think that we need sometimes, especially as Americans, a complete change in our perspective on suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few ideas so that we don't miss the point of suffering. First, when you are rejected for the name of Jesus Christ, it's not you that people are rejecting, it's Jesus. Again, we're not talking about being rejected because we're condescending, we're holier than thou, but simply because we've identified with Jesus Christ and we've pointed people to Jesus Christ and we've spoken the name of Jesus Christ. They're not rejecting us, they're rejecting Christ. Second, their response vindicates our lifestyle. Their response indicates our value system. They're saying to us, you don't belong here. You don't fit in. And you know what? They're right. This world is not our home. We are citizens of another kingdom. One of the reasons we experience so little persecution is because we're actually trying to make this place our home and we're identifying fully with this world, not fully with Jesus Christ. But when we identify with Jesus Christ and we suffer persecution as a result, the world is telling us this is not your home. You don't fit in. They're vindicating the choices that we're making. Third, remember the reward. Jesus says, if you suffer persecution for my name, great is your reward in heaven. Maybe not here, but in heaven. Maybe here, if you identify fully with Jesus Christ, you won't get that job. Or you may be passed over for that promotion. Or you might not get that scholarship. Maybe here you'll be rejected by family members or by friends. But great is your reward in heaven. Jesus says, I promise. And I've got lots of great rewards to hand out. I'm very, very, very wealthy. And I know exactly what you need and what will most satisfy you. And I promise you, if you identify fully with me in this lifetime... When you see me and you stand before me, great will be your reward. Remember your reward. Fourth, change in our perspective is that our personal rights, our right to comfort, our right not to be persecuted is not nearly as important as another person's eternal destiny. Okay, so we need to give it up for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because when we respond appropriately to suffering and persecution from others, that begins to knock down barriers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And their eternal destiny is more important than our personal rights. That's why Paul could say, I've become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. I have given up my rights and I suffer persecution so that people can know Jesus Christ and they can be with him forever because that's the solution that they need. That's a complete change in perspective. When we respond appropriately to suffering, we fulfill our purpose in the world. And Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that the reason that God has left us here and not said, church, it's time to come home, is so that we would be salt and light in the world. I want you to look with me in the sermon, chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works 
and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. Spice things up. Okay? Make life rich. Jesus is making three assumptions about the world here. The world is dark, it is decaying, and it is dull. But the kingdom is vibrant. There's vitality. There's life. And we are the embodiment of that. We reflect or radiate the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the presence of Jesus Christ. You are the salt of the earth. It's interesting if you look back in Jesus' day, salt was used in every area of life. It was used in uh, economics and commerce. It was a means of ratifying a covenant or a contract. It was used in medicine as an antiseptic or to uh, sterilize wounds. It was used in agriculture. It preserved fertilizer. It was used also in um, the area of worship. When a Jew brought a, a grain offering, they would also bring it with salt. But most commonly, it was used just in the household as a preservative and a seasoning. And so I think when Jesus spoke these words, these people were thinking about their own household and how salt was used in their own household in these two ways, as preservative and as seasoning. So I want to develop those metaphors that Jesus uses here. Remember, he's speaking this sermon up in Galilee. Okay, he's probably near the seashore. He's probably near a place where they can actually look out and see the sea, and they can look out and they see boats out there, and they see fishing boats and people hauling in fish. And he's speaking of very earthy things. Remember, the fish that was caught down at the Sea of Galilee was actually had to be transported to Jerusalem. If people wanted fish in Jerusalem, it had to be transported, but they didn't have any refrigerated donkeys or anything like that. So what did they do? They rubbed it down with salt, right? They packed it with salt. It was a preservative. Well, this is really a, a, a powerful visual image uh, for me, or maybe olfactory image for me, because I remember one time when my wife and I went on vacation. We had a refrigerator out in our garage, and the fuse blew, and we had fish in the freezer. So we're gone for two weeks, and we came home. And you know, that fish didn't smell better after two weeks without refrigeration. Matter of fact, we almost had to throw away the entire refrigerator because that smell had just permeated the whole thing. It had gone out into our garage. It had kind of leached into our house. I mean, it was, it was disgusting. It was absolutely horrible. Well, the world is decaying. The world thinks it's getting better. If we can just make that next technological advancement or that next advancement in science if we can find that next medicine to heal that disease, if we can make advances in education, then we can heal all the problems in our world. And the fact of the matter is, no, you can't. As Christians, of course, we should be involved in those things because through them we can bring the truth of Jesus Christ. But we have to be realistic. The world is decaying. It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And the only solution is ultimately spiritual because the problem is spiritual. The reason there's disease in the world it's spiritual. Okay, it's ultimately spiritual. We may not be able to, t- to tie each specific disease to a specific sin, but the reason that the world is broken is because Adam and Eve sinned, and their sin caused all of creation to be affected. And so the ultimate solution is what Jesus Christ brings. He, he brings ultimately not just salvation for each of us personally, but one day he will return in glory and he will remake heavens and earth, and all things will be set right again. Jesus Christ is the solution for those things. And when you and I 
take on our proper role in the world, we bring life. We preserve life. Salt was used as a preservative, and so this image was vivid in their minds. Salt was also used, just as it is today, as a seasoning. I'll read you a verse from the book of Job, and I'm yanking this entirely out of context, okay, but it's just a good illustration. Okay, Job chapter 6. Job says, Can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are like loathsome food to me. And when I read that out of context, of course, I think of my children. Because, you know, my children are like, they're salt addicts. You know, and I don't, I don't know if children can experience hypertension or not, but it's just like, they want control of the salt. They want their own salt shaker, and it should be big. It's just like, you know, like, stop, enough already. No, because, Daddy, the salt got mixed in. It's not on the top yet, and I need to taste it. You know, they're just, they love, because they hate bland food. They, they want things to pop. So they salt and salt and salt and salt, you know. That's what our role is in the world, it, it, to create appetite, to create spice, to, to create something that's appealing, to create thirst in people. And when we live differently, going through the same circumstances that everyone else in the world goes through, all the, the sufferings and the trials and the temptations, all, everything that's hard about this world, but when we go through those things differently with peace and with hope, and with joy, and with patience, and when we respond to their rejection with kindness and forgiveness, that is appealing. That is appealing. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how are you going to make it salty again? How are you going to put the salt back in salt? It's good for nothing except just to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What is Jesus talking about? How could salt become tasteless? How could salt become unsalty? I remember in those days, primarily they collected salt from the Dead Sea. Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. And water flows down from the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River. It goes into the Dead Sea, and then it can't go out anywhere. And so... The water evaporates and it leaves behind all these minerals. The mineral content is, is the most dense, most concentrated of any body of water. If you swim in it, you float, and you float really high. You float on top. It's a really crazy experience. And then you get off and you've got all this film all over you. It's all these minerals. And so when they collect the salt from the Dead Sea, the salt would be attached to a lot of different minerals. You couldn't just take it and eat it immediately. It had to be purified. And salt is tasteless. Salt is unsalty when it is mixed with all of these other minerals. You can't use it yet. It has to be purified first. And we, when we are mixed in with the world, when we are completely indistinguishable from the world, we lose our saltiness. You see, we have to remain engaged. We have to get out of the salt shaker, into the world. We have to identify with those around us and all the struggles that they go through, but we need to be distinct as well in the way that we respond in the value systems. That's what the, the Beatitudes are all about. It's an entirely different value system. And what makes us distinct is that we live for another world. But if we don't have that distinctiveness, we have no impact on the lives of others. So salt would be collected from the Dead Sea and it'd be put in piles 
so that it could be transported and, and distributed. But if the rains fell while it was still in the piles and it wasn't covered, the rains would leach out the salt and all that would be left behind would be these white minerals. And all that you could do with those is to take them and put them on the roadway and pack down the road. And they'd be trampled underfoot by men. They were not useful. You and I have a calling as citizens of heaven to be salt, to preserve life, to bring life, to create thirst in the way that we live. Second metaphor that Jesus uses is that we're also the light of the world. Look in chapter 5, verse 14. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and then put it under a basket. But they put it up on a lampstand and then it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, the the history really helps us understand what Jesus is talking about. Every city was built on a hill because every city was built at a source of water. Either there was a spring there or someone had dug a well. So they built a city around it. And then if foreign armies came in and they knocked that city down, well, then people would come back eventually and build at the same place because there was water there. So they'd add another layer to that city and then another layer and then another layer. So if you go to Israel, you go to these excavation sites, they're called tells, while all these cities are up on a hill. The ones that were built in Jesus' day, there's a hill there. And up on that hill, all the houses together shining their lights when there was no light pollution, where there's no electricity, you can't hide it. It cannot be hidden, and it shouldn't be hidden. That foreign traveler who's coming through, but he can't reach his city in time. He doesn't reach his destination, and the sun has gone down, and it's very, very dark. He sees that city up on the hill, and it offers hope. I'm almost there. Come on. Honey, we're almost there. We're almost to safety. We're almost to to a bed and a a warm meal. We're almost there. And that city cannot be hidden and it shouldn't be hidden. You don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket. That's not the point of the lamp. You light the lamp and then you hold it up high. Men and women of Grace Bible Church, we need to be very, very public about our faith in Jesus Christ. Because we do our good works so that they will glorify our Father in heaven. I don't do things in the name of Brian, hopefully. We go out and we do good works in the community. We need to make it very clear to people that the reason that we live the way that we live is for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. We believe he is the solution. Don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It shouldn't be hidden. Don't try to hide it. Be public about your faith. Identify with Jesus Christ. And if you do, you know what? Sometimes you will be persecuted, but it's worth it. Great is your reward in heaven. Jesus will not let you down. And the more fully you identify with Jesus Christ, the greater your reward. I've done a a lot of weddings. And on the wedding day, the bride does glow. Okay, I've seen it. Uh, Literally, you know, her makeup is the best it's ever been in her whole life. And her hair is done perfectly. She's wearing a white dress and it's got some bigness to it. And the lights are shining down. And literally, she, she glows, you know and she's smiling real big, you know? And the groom, he glows too. Not as much, but he glows too because he's got this 
just big stupid grin on his face. You know, I like my favorite, you know, I stand right here. The people come down and I, I, it's fun. I watch the doors open. I get to see the bride, you know, and she's smiling and she's glowing. But after I watch the bride, then I turn, I watch the groom and that's my entertainment for the day. You know, I just watch him. He's a, you know, he's just, oh man, he's so, so excited. And, you know, and he sees her and he's excited. He's, oh man, it's, a, it's amazing. It's wonderful. And then I watch, they stand up here with me and he's holding her hand and nine times out of ten, he's like rubbing a hole right here. He's just so, uh, you know, just so excited. They're anticipating all of life together. And there's no question in anyone's mind, who's the bride and who's the groom? They're the happiest people in the room. They're radiant. We are the bride of Christ. And the more fully that we know Jesus Christ, and we love Jesus Christ, and we live our lives now for that time when we will live forever with him, not identifying with the world, not being short-sighted, not failing to realize that this life is just a vapor, it's a breath, and suffering is just for a moment, but being with Jesus, that's forever. When we live with that mentality and that mindset, that orientation, it changes our whole value system. And sure, some people reject Christ in us, but others are drawn to that. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That is, you are Jesus's plan. This is the plan. We are the plan. The embodiment of truth and life and hope is in us. Will you embrace that calling? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. And as we do, I'd like you to take just a moment and ask God's spirit to speak to you. Maybe he's saying, you know, you are so fully identified with the world that you don't, you're not distinct and maybe you need to have, have that separation or maybe you have not been willing to identify fully with Jesus Christ and all that that entails. And maybe God is saying, take the basket off the bushel and shine for Jesus Christ. Let, let God's spirit speak to you and then I'll close this in just a moment in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would speak to us. I pray, Father, that we would not be ashamed of Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would rejoice even when we, when we suffer, that we would, we would love Jesus so much that we want to proclaim him in all that we do and all that we say. I pray, Father, for this community that you would stir up again revival. I pray that many men and women would be drawn to Jesus Christ through these believers, through these men and women here who are worshiping you. Father, I pray that we would live lives that, that create thirst. I pray that we would live lives that are, that are so different and so full of hope and joy that others in this community would be drawn to Christ through us. Father, make us salt and light. For the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let your light shine. God bless you. We'll see you next week.